Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Wall Street reporter Shanali Basick now, who has taken a five-day mini sabbatical to read Jamie Dimon's annual letter. Uh, Shanali, <laughs> I'm just wondering, after you got through the 66-page tome, did it give us any hints as to what to expect from the earnings report coming on Wednesday? Listen, the fact that he thinks that things are going to be good till 2023 says a lot, right? Because you have volatility now down a little bit, which, you know, on the face of it is fine. It's nice. It's boring. But banks make money when things get volatile. Banks don't make money when things get too rough uh, for people to really engage in markets, right? So, Shanali, what's, what are expectations here as we come in uh, for these uh, banks here, this earnings? Because uh, we're going to have a lot of the big ones on Wednesday. Yeah, I'm, I've got to say, I've moved on from Jamie Dimon's annual letter all the way to the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper again. Because yep. on Wednesday, we have both JP Morgan reporting and Coinbase's direct listing. So you have old Wall Street, new Wall Street. You have a confluence of events that I think are very exciting, actually. And Coinbase is going to be using uh, the direct listing model, which, you know, we've wondered for a long time how much that type of a model is going to eat into the traditional IPOs that make the banks owe so, so the, much money as we know. Do the it. banks make less money and do we know how much less they do make on a direct listing versus a traditional IPO? Well, here's what's interesting. They don't make less money per bank. There are just a lot less banks working on them. So where you can have a dozen or so underwriters on a direct listing, there's really only a few that work on, uh, sorry, on an IPO, there's only a few that work on a direct listing. So Goldman and Morgan Stanley are, they've really gotten ahead of this. They've been able to make a business for this of themselves. Citadel Securities, which is usually the market maker for these direct listings, they've made a big business for themselves. But on NASDAQ, you don't need a market maker like Citadel Securities. NASDAQ kind of does the process for you. Um, and so it's a big day for the exchange and it's a big day for um, the, you know, I like how Bloomberg Intelligence puts it. You can expect Coinbase to eventually become a bank for crypto. It's also a big day for um, the Bitcoin community or the crypto community, because this is a much more democratic way of giving investors access to your shares. Right. If you do an IPO. You need uh, to be a buyer in that as a retail investor. Um, you need to get syndicate. That means you have to have developed a long relationship with your broker. You have to be a big player. You know, it, it almost seems unfair for, you know, a mom and pop investor because there's no hope in heck that they can ever get any syndicate. They have to buy it after it starts trading and typically after a pop, right? Yeah, that's really the hope here, that the direct listings can make this much more democratic. Uh, let's see how it works out at the end of the day, right? Let's see how many people actually start to buy into Coinbase. And then, you know, Matt, it also, it's become a more than really $100 billion company in private markets. Do they keep that valuation as they become a retail play? You can make the argument both ways, right? If Bitcoin continues at its current pace, if they add more products, if you get more retail interests, then you see Coinbase going much higher, and it is good. But it, on other 
areas. You can say maybe some of these companies have waited very late. Um, and, you know, do they face potential down rounds when they get into public markets? We'll also be interesting to see if the price in Bitcoin fades a little into this because that's $100 billion that's essentially going to come out of crypto market cap, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible here. The Coinbase play is really looking beyond Bitcoin, right? And looking at them getting into other assets like uh, sorry, uh, areas like custody, right? Making Bitcoin more easily held and tradable for large institutional firms. Because firms like JP Morgan, right, uh, have been so slow to get into this kind of new new era of finance. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go, Shanali. What are the the big banks saying about crypto? Because it feels like they're late to the game. It feels like they don't ha- or they have not made a big commitment. How are how's how are investors thinking about this? Well, one thing that's pretty incredible is we've in recent weeks got news that Goldman and Morgan Stanley are taking steps to make it more available for their private wealth clients. There's a couple ramifications for that. One, crypto was supposed to be this great equalizer. Yet at the banks, it's being made available to the wealthiest clients first. (laughs) So that is kind of against um, the whole heart of, of what crypto is supposed to stand for. The other thing about it is, again, it's years later, right? It's a crypto, it's Bitcoin above $50,000 is when they're starting to sell it. Does that big give a big boost to the price or are they getting in late? Only time will tell that story. You know, the folks that have gotten in much earlier through other means outside of the banks are probably much happier today. Um, <laughs> but you do see the banks trying to um, embrace it. Just got uh, 20 seconds here, but you speak to the wealthiest investors uh, on Wall Street. Are you noticing an uptick in the number who are interested in Bitcoin? Oh, yeah. Even traditional hedge fund managers, you know, watching Dan Loeb tweet about it over the weekend is, is you know, a fun change to, to watch. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And I think the uh, we are seeing that institutional uptake, uh, guys. And, uh, and again, even on the corporate side with uh, uh, Tesla, obviously putting it on its balance sheet. Shanali Basak, thanks so much for joining us, giving that preview of earnings and preview of Coinbase on Wednesday. Shanali Basak, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News. We always appreciate getting the update on all things Wall Street. Now let's get straight to Duncan Aldred. He joins us from General Motors, where he's the vice president uh, Global Buick and uh, and GMC. Duncan, great to have you on the program. I got to say, ever since I was a kid and Arnold Schwarzenegger started driving his uh, mil-spec H1 Hummer around <laughs> LA, I have wanted one. And I still want one, uh, preferably with a big 6.7 liter turbo diesel. But you're bringing back <laughs> the Hummer in a much more eco-friendly way. What kind of um, demand are you seeing? Yeah, good morning. Great to be with you. Well, we're seeing huge demand. We revealed the uh, pickup truck version of the GMC Hummer EV in October, and uh, we've just revealed the SUV version of it uh, about a week or so ago. We started taking reservations. It's fair to say that the um, the reservation count is huge. Uh, we, we did a limited edition, first edition, which sold out in a matter of minutes, both for the truck originally and then more recently for the SUV. And, and this is very different to that, uh, that vehicle that you just mentioned there. As you say, this is a true zero emission, all electric vehicle. But believe me, the performance and capability that this generates uh, really does put that original Hummer into the shade. Zero to 60 
in three seconds for the truck, a little bit longer for the SUV, uh, the ability to go in the most uh, difficult off-road terrains. This is a super truck, and we, we coined the phrase on this because this really is the world's first super truck, whether it be in pickup truck or SUV guys. All right, what are these super trucks uh, going to set me back? So they start at $80,000, um, and they go all the way up to $100,000. Um, but for that, you get in an amazing amount of capability. I mentioned there um, the, the zero to 60 uh, type uh, figures, but you've also got four-wheel steering. So these are big vehicles, but they've got a turning circle, thanks to all four wheels turning, that is the same as a small car, like a Chevrolet Sonic, for example. Um, that four-wheel steer function also allows you to go into what we call crab walk which means the vehicle can drive in a diagonal fashion, which you might think, why do I need that? But certainly when you get into extreme off-road environments to help navigate around, uh, it's, it's an amazing feature. But to be honest, it just makes you smile when you do it because you see the, hor the horizon going in the wrong direction when you're driving. <laughs> there. So that's an amazing feature. Um, we have what's called an infinity roof, so the six panels which all come off the storing the front of the vehicle where an engine would be in a traditional vehicle, uh, you can store the infinity panel roof and the rear drop glass actually falls down. So you basically make this vehicle a convertible. Uh, we think it's probably the first all-electric convertible uh, in the world. And, of course, you're getting that amazing open-air experience with uh, a near silence uh, from the propulsion system because it's electric. Um, it's also got Super Cruise, the latest generation of Super Cruise. And this is what a lot of people refer to as autonomous driving. We call it a driver assist feature, but it allows you to drive along the highway, take your hands off the wheel completely, and it will even do overtaking maneuvers as well. So this is a vehicle that is truly revolutionary, <laughs> truly a super truck. Yeah. And whilst it's at the, the upper price bands, we think it's incredible value for money. It will be amazing. Uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to the SUV version, which comes out, I think, what, late 2023. And uh, I, I think it's gorgeous. I got to ask, though, Duncan, um, what's your answer to the current uh, to the current crop of gas-powered super trucks? You've got the Dodge Ram TRX, which I think blew everybody away. And Ford plans to answer. They kind of flubbed it. And now they're going to answer next year with the Raptor R. But these are, you know, more than six liters V8 supercharged or turbocharged with uh, 700 horsepower. Does GM have an answer to that? Yeah, we do. And, and again, you know, I, I, we're still we're still selling traditional uh, base vehicles as well, and uh, and I love them. But if it's performance that you're looking for, then quite honestly, not nothing can come close to um, to the Hummer EV, whether it be in truck, uh, pickup truck, or SUV. Guys, we're talking about. 11,500 pounds of torque. We're talking about wow. 1,000 horsepower on the truck and about 830 on the SUV. And as I say there, you're talking about instant acceleration, zero to 60, uh, three seconds on the truck and about three and a half on the SUV. So th this is... Um, this gives truly kind of unprecedented levels of performance. And it doesn't just do it in a, in, in a way that is a pure brute force. I mean, for example, when you choose to uh, go for this great zero to 60 time, obviously in the safe conditions, you engage what's called what's to freedom mode. And what that does, it lowers the vehicle to its lowest level because the suspension goes up and down. 
Um, the seat starts vibrating. You get almost like an amusement park theater within the vehicle. All the screens begin to display things, and you count down, and then boom, you, you uh, press the, the gas pedal. Sorry, you press the accelerator pedal. Off you go, and uh, three All seconds right. later, you're at six. No gas pedal. It's, All it's, right. Very yeah, interesting. No gas pedal now. <laughs> yeah, no gas pedal now. All right, that was good car talk, guys. I'm glad we, we you guys got to chat your little uh, auto stuff. Uh, Duncan Aldred, <laughs> Vice President, Global Buick and GMC, talking about electric vehicles coming to the truck market. And I know one Matt Miller is psyched, so that's good for him. Well, this week, we're going to see a big, big IPO, and it's in the crypto space. Coinbase coming public this week via a direct listing at a staggering valuation, staggering to me at least, of approximately $100 billion. Let's get the latest on this. We can do that with John Wu. He's the president of Ava Labs based in Miami. So first, John, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love for you just to simply describe what Coinbase is and why it is so critical to the crypto world. Hey, Paul, nice to be here. So Coinbase is a crypto exchange. They are very important to the crypto world because they are one of the few properly regulated exchanges that allows fiat onto the crypto world. So they provide that service in a compliant way. And that's why it's so important. You know, before I go to bed every night, I always like to dream about uh, had I bought like 3000 Bitcoin when it was at $75 a piece then I would have liked to sell it out around seventeen, eighteen thousand at the peak in uh, 2018 and then, and, then, and then buy back in when it dropped again and then sell out again at like 60,000. So I would be like a billionaire right now. Would I be able to do that on, on Coinbase? Was that, would that be the best place for me to do it? Uh, uh, yes, that you are allowed to do that. That's one of the places you can do it. But, um, you know, I can attest to the fact from having been on the buy side before, it's easier to just buy and hold the concept of trying to capture a move and being able to uh, navigate the daily trading. Is These are dreams, difficult. John. This is my <laughs> this is my dream every night. It's nothing that I could actually have done. I think it would have been ethically wrong for me. But um, is Coinbase then the best place to do big Bitcoin trades securely? For a U.S. investor, who wants an experience that's similar to what they do at the brokerage houses, the answer is yes. All right. So, John, is this a way for investors, if I wanted to buy into this Coinbase IPO, would I be, my major play here is, hey, this gives me exposure to the crypto world? Yes, absolutely. I think the one thing that you would have to consider, though, is how correlated is this to just Bitcoin. I think 70% of the assets custody by these guys is just Bitcoin. So if you want to get exposure to anything below the top five coins, this is okay way, but it's not possibly the best way to do it. So uh, where else should investors look then right now? And does this crypto uh, boom still have room to run? So in terms of, uh, I'll answer it backwards. In terms of the boom, I think you, you absolutely have room because the market cap in crypto has gone from about $1 trillion at the end of January to about $2 trillion. Part of that is just you know, the price of BTC 
going up. But if you look at what's beneath that and the faster growing parts of it, even at Coinbase's custody, it is Ethereum and some of the other alternatives. Bitcoin has proven to the world the first generation of crypto was good for a digital currency. Ethereum is now showing people that, hey, there could be utility. There's this whole DeFi network popping up. There's these NFTs that you and I have talked about in the past. So there's starting to begin use case in what I call second generation of crypto, which is the Ethereum and some of the other alternatives. Is Ethereum, help me out here, is Ethereum a competitor to Bitcoin or is it just a use case of Bitcoin? How do we think about it in the context of Bitcoin? Because we are hearing more and more about Ethereum as the stock price or as the price of the currency continues to rise. Sure. The easiest way to think of Ethereum is that it is showing the utility. It's kind of like iOS on Apple. It is the platform that allows applications, whether in the traditional world, Facebook or Clubhouse or TikTok, to build on top of that iOS because it has a platform to allow developers to come in and be creative and create use cases on top of it. Um, that's the best way to think about Ethereum. Whereas Bitcoin, the best use case actually, frankly, is still digital gold storage of value. And that is because the call it, think of it as the operating system, the mechanism on Bitcoin has certain advantages, but it doesn't have speed. It doesn't have transaction capability. It doesn't have smart contracts on top of it. That's what Ethereum has provided. Now, there's a whole new group, what I'll call Crypto 3.0, and that's the, the guys below the fold. And those guys are now making those transactions happen at a very, very fast pace, no latency, and making it cheap. So, you know, we've, ta we've talked about NFTs in the past. There are people right now who go to Ethereum, they purchase a $50 NFT somewhere, but they got to pay $30 to $40 in gas prices, which is effectively transaction costs. So that's going to be prohibitive of creating a proper digital economy. So you have a whole new generation now of call it platforms that are allowing better technology, better way of setting things up, allowing people to actually transact, allowing a digital economy to really thrive. That medium exchange should not be prohibitive to becoming a nice economy. So tell us quickly again what, what you're doing at Ava Labs, because you, you know, come from a full Ivy League pedigree, MBA at Harvard. You worked at Tiger Management. What, what do you do in, in, and what is your platform capable of? Great. So I'm president of Ava Labs. Ava Labs is the team behind the protocol Avalanche. Avalanche is a next generation blockchain that is compatible with Ethereum. So exactly what I said before, where I think the first generation crypto Bitcoin was digital money. Second generation was applications, utility and an ecosystem. Third generation are going to be Avalanche like platforms. Uh, that allow people to transact and exchange things cheaply. It's almost like my Friendster, MySpace, and now we're in the world of Facebook, where we're going to about to really take off. All right. Well, it's great to get your insight on all things crypto. John, thanks again for joining us. Hope to have you back again soon. John Wu there, the president of Ava Labs, talking to us about the Coinbase IPO. This could, Paul, be a $100 billion company. It certainly is value yep. that way privately. And the question is, um, how will investors who've bid up crypto assets so quickly, uh, you know, um, embrace coin, coin, Coinbase? Yep.
Absolutely. And it's going to be a direct listing match. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this thing trades when it does come out. Yeah, I think the direct listing aspect of it is really cool. So you could get a lot more retail. This is Bloomberg. Now I want to bring in Anurag Rana. He is a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst. And of course, the CHIP Summit is on today. We'll get to that. But first off, this morning we saw Microsoft headlines cross. They're going to buy Nuance in a $16 billion deal that is their second largest in history. Anurag, I, I read your BI piece, and you have a really cool chart uh, about the reach, the product penetration of Nuance. 10,000 organizations use it, but I thought it was amazing. 90% of hospitals in America use Nuance solutions. What does this company do? So in the simplest way, if I'm a doctor and I come back after visiting a patient, I need to transcribe that software to that particular you know, dictation of the of the chart. Um, the software allows me to transcribe it as I'm as as you and I are talking. The software transcribes our conversation in the background, and that really has been their forte for many years. And that's really where the crux of the product is. And um, this is what we think Microsoft's going to scale it much bigger. All right. So I mean, nineteen point seven billion dollars. That's a that's a big number to the Matt Millers and Paul Sweeney's of the world. Um, but the Microsoft, that's not so much here. So I guess they're thinking about the total addressable market. What's, just give us a sense of the strategy uh, behind uh, Microsoft, what, the, what they think they can do with this asset. So think about it, Paul. Currently, healthcare accounts for close to 18% of U.S.'s GDP in terms of total expenses. It's an area which is probably the biggest problem area for any corporation that's out there. It's a problem for all politicians. But, and, and we have always said for years, I, everybody said it for years, that only technology can solve this problem of you, you know, wastage. Uh, now, the pandemic is a catalyst for people to say, can we do a lot more work digitally? And this is one of the, the, the you could say, nuggets of where, we, as we go more digital, you want to get more things that can transcribe using you know, voice, using AI. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you talk about what doctors use it for, um, I'm thinking like my mechanic could use this for my bike. I got carb flow, I, I got clutch slippage. You know, um, if you have an old bike, those things are a problem. But you could use it in so many different ways. For example, finance, the financial industry could use it in, in um, looking at a, a client's portfolio. Are they going to stick with just healthcare here? I don't think so. In fact, one of the things being pointed out in our written research is conversation is increasingly becoming the, the most important way people interact with any application. So, you know, from the consumer point, whether that's Alexa or Siri, but from, you know, other areas as well, whether it's your HR software down the road, you know, whether it's any other productivity application that helps you become more, um, you know, productive, uh, you will be using voice as the first way of command to, you know, to interact with the person on the other side. And that's why this software, you know, the guts of this software is so important because you can use it to create customer service chatbots, for example. Anurag, you've covered Microsoft for a long time. They typically uh, don't acquire a lot of stuff. They're not very active in the M&A market. They did buy LinkedIn and now this deal and a couple others. Is that going to stay the same or do you expect them to, to try to step up and goose their growth rate with, with some acquisitions? 
So I, I think, Paul, the biggest thing I would say is they would want to juice the growth rates, not by actually acquiring something for the sake of revenue, but it's going to be technologies that have very large you know, implications. So, for example, uh, the, this particular applications, as both of you mentioned, will have applications not just in the healthcare vertical, but almost everything that Microsoft does. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of acquiring the software uh, where the end market is, is incredibly large. And I think that's really what we will be looking at is whether they keep on investing in areas where, um, you know, the, the end markets are not tiny, but have a very large addressable market. So I just want to quickly get you to touch on the chip summit that's happening today. We've seen the problems spread across a number of industries. Just 30 seconds here, Anurag, what, what do you expect to be accomplished I don't think that summit is going to accomplish anything concrete in a sense that that's a problem that just cannot be solved so quickly. But we are, I'm happy that they are discussing this problem just because as a nation, we really need to get a lot more semiconductor work done in the U.S. rather than you know, being a, a hostage to the, 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 the Asian vendors. Realistically, Anurag, will we bring chip manufacturing to the States? I, I, it's very difficult to say whether we physically bring it or not, but we really need to have a way to make sure that, you know, similar to the way we are getting drugs or, or we're getting the vaccine in, you know, without a problem from anywhere yeah. in the world, we need to make sure we get the first access to it before anybody else does. All right, Anurag, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Anurag Rana, Senior Software and IT Services Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, helping us break down the Microsoft deal. Again, $19.7 billion total consideration, uh, big premium. Um, but as Anurag was mentioning, uh, it increases Microsoft's uh, positioning and enhances its positioning in healthcare as healthcare uh, moves into the 21st century. So we'll certainly follow up on that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.